We're in 2 Timothy chapter 3. You've got your Bibles out there. And let's look at this if we can. 2 Timothy was written by whom? Who wrote it? Apostle Paul. Was his first, middle, or last letter? It was his last letter. He's in prison when he writes it. He is in Rome, Italy, and he's in the Mamertine prison outside the Colosseum. I've had the joy to be there and look inside to what they think was the uh, area in which he could have been in, uh, in prison there in Rome. He had already spent two years in a hired house. That's when he wrote 1 Timothy, probably, and Ephesians, and Philippians, and Philemon, and Colossians, and uh, possibly also Hebrews, if he is the author of Hebrews. But this is not the same. This is a miserable experience, not living in a hired house. You're in jail. He's getting visits by Luke. All the other protégés and, and friends have gone away from him, some because they're doing the Lord's work, and some because they have gotten frustrated and fallen in love with the world and have left. And that's one of the sadder things about Christianity is that not everybody will take the journey all the way. But I want to be someone who is doing the right thing the right way for the right reason for the rest of my life. And I hope you're in that group as well. And you ought to pray, God, help me not be someone who has preached to others and I myself have been a castaway. I used to teach Sunday school class and now I don't do it anymore. I don't, I don't have that same heart for the Lord. You don't want to do that. And, and uh, certainly Demas is an example of that. But Paul is in prison and he begins to think about his young friend, Timothy. He calls him his own son in the faith. He met him probably when he was a junior high age young man in Lystra. On his first missionary journey, one of the major persecutions he endured was a, he got stoned and left for dead outside the city streets of Lystra. In that group of believers was a lady named Lois and another lady named Eunice that was a mother and a grandmother to this young man, Timothy. And in that first missionary journey, we believe that probably the Apostle Paul led them to the Lord. Now, they're Jewish in background, and they had uh, been exposed to the Old Testament but had not been exposed to the gospel of Jesus. And so through Paul's work... He led them to Christ, Lois, Eunice, and this young man, Timothy. And, of course, he made his way on the first missionary journey and came back through there, saw him again, but he's still young. And then he went back to uh, Antioch, gave the report, and went back out again. This time he didn't take Barnabas, but he took Silas. And they went on the second missionary journey. When they went to Lystra, they saw Timothy. And Paul picked up, and he had a good testimony from all those around him. He said he had a good report from all the Christians in that area. They had seen his young example, and they said, that kid's special. And Paul invited him to continue on on the missionary journeys. And from that point on, until Paul went to be with the Lord, Timothy was with him. And we believe probably he may have been 13, 14 when he got saved. And Paul served the Lord at least 18 years after that. So he is still probably in his 30s when he receives this letter. And Paul challenges him. I would say there's one word that would define 2 Timothy chapter, or the whole book of 2 Timothy, and that's a challenge. In chapter 1, he gives him a personal challenge. He reminds him of the ministry of his, of his mother and his grandmother. His dad was not, it was a Greek and possibly not even a convert of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
But he told him about his mom and his, and his grandma. He told him about those early days. He challenged him on his ordination when he was set apart for the work of the Lord. And he told him, listen, I need you to take this personal challenge and live for the Lord and keep on the high road of holiness in, in, in some words and told him to keep his doctrine right. Chapter 2, he gives him a practical challenge. And he just walks through. He said, I want you to be like a teacher. I want you to be like a soldier. Simplistic, surrendered, submissive, and selfless. I want you to be like a farmer who is faithful and fruitful. I want you to be like an athlete that is disciplined and plays by the rules. I want you to be willing to suffer and go through difficult times and don't get shook when you have a bad day or you get attacked by satanic and adversarial forces in your work for the Lord. And then he tells him, I want you to be a student. To study, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman, need not to be ashamed, right and divide in the word of truth. Then he says, I want you to be a good, uh, clean vessel, a vessel that would be unto honor and not to dishonor. He said, in a great house there are silver and gold and wood and earth glasses and drinking, uh, drinking uh, glasses and baths. He said, it doesn't really matter if you're gold or you're a clay vessel. It doesn't matter if you're made out of wood or you're made out of silver. What matters is that you're clean. <laughs> if you have a clean wooden glass or a nasty golden glass and you had to take a drink of water, you would, you would turn aside the gold thing and get something that is clean. And he said, listen, whatever you are, purge yourself. Purify yourself. Walk in holiness. And then he tells him to be a good Sold, uh, excuse me, a good servant of Jesus Christ. Don't strive. Be patient. Be gentle with people. Apt to teach, ready to talk, and ready to help people when they're ready to listen. And then he tells them to go ahead and, in meekness, work with people, instruct people that oppose themselves. He said, much of the ministry is working with people who are absolutely sabotaging their future. <laughs> it's one of the frustrating things about building a Sunday school class why is it that they can put 80,000 people or 70,000 people in Soldier Field to watch the Bears lose and pay an outrageous, outrageous amount of money and spend all kinds of money on parking and, and food and other things and, uh, and yet to get eight people in your Sunday school class is an act of Congress? And just challenging to work and to get people to come and, and serve the Lord. And please, he said, listen, you're going to be up against it. And you're going to be working with people that oppose themselves. We'll be meek. And then he said that God would bring repentance, a change in them. That they would acknowledge the truth. And they could recover themselves out of their, if you'll excuse the words, bipolar ways that Satan takes them captive at his will. He just jerks them back and forth. You know, you can tell oftentimes when a man or a woman is in sin because they're just, they can't make up their mind. They're bipolar in their decision makings. They're just one time this way and then in two hours they can be totally different. Back and forth. And why? is because they've allowed Satan to have uh, control who takes him, them captive at his will. He jerks them around. He said, keep working with them. And then he comes to chapter 3, that perilous day challenge. And I don't want to give too much review, but he says, listen, this is my challenge for you in a difficult day. He said, you're going to, in the last days, know that you're going to be facing perilous days. 
perilous challenges. And why? Because it's going to be sin. It's not only a matter of nature and a curse that this world's on, it's going to be something that's going to be rampant. And he begins to tell the signs of the time. We read it the other day, uh, talking about unthankfulness, heady, proud, high-minded, fierce, debaters, disobedient to parents, uh, without natural affections, on and on. He gives 18 different symptoms of a perilous day. And he says, from this selfish group of people, there's going to come a sensual, sexual sinners as well that lead captive silly women, lady with sins. They'll, it's selfish sins that oftentimes lead to immoral sins. And he said, they're going to be, this group is going to be ever learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. They will be smart, but they'll be dumb. They'll have all their senses, but they will not. They'll just, the truth is the elephant in the living room. They just keep walking around it. They can't see the truth. And he says, this is what the day is going to be like. But they will proceed no further, verse number nine. He said, they're going to be stopped in their tracks. Sin always accelerates death. James said it like this. When lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. Sin, when it's finished, it bringeth forth death. LSD of the Bible. Lust, sin, death. He said, this is what happens. He said, sin always ends in an early death. A death of relationships, a death of potential, a loss of resources, uh, hope, hopelessness, despair, all those things follow sinful activities and decisions. But he said, there are some things you can do. There are some strategies for perilous days. And we see that. I'll just give it to you in a quick review, and then we'll talk about the last one quickly. Would you look at verse number 10? But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, and afflictions. He said, uh, first thing, those of us who are tenured Christians ought to refuse to compromise doctrine, manner of life. Don't change your standards. Don't change your, your music. Don't change your entertainment. Hey, listen, if it's right, if it was right 15 years ago, it's still right today. He said, but you fully know not only what I believe, but you know my manner of life, my purpose I still got that purpose in me. You know, Paul is probably 61 to 65 years old. He's getting ready to die. He says the time of his departure is at hand. And he said, you have watched me from start to... You knew me when, I was, when you were 13 years old. You're in your mid-30s now, and you can see my life has not changed. My doctrines have not changed. Someone said, I, when you finish your life, you want to... I was a preacher. I heard him say, he goes, I want to I I die, and I want to end my life with the same book, the same belief, and the same babe. <laughs> so go for it, brother. Amen. But, you know, he said, you know, I haven't changed. My purpose, my charity, my faith, my commitment, it's been the same. I've stayed on the high road of holiness. And by the way, we need that out of you. Those of you who've been saved a few years, stay right with God. Stay consistent. Determine. I want to finish this thing strong. I'm not going to I'm not going to wimp out and crawl across the finish line. I'm going to do my best to do as much as I can do, as long as I can do it, for the glory of God. Then he said, number two, you're going to need to be willing to live outside your comfort zone. 
He said, all the live God in Christ Jesus shall do what? Suffer, suffer persecution. He said, because evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse, deceiving others and being deceived themselves. He said, so you're going to have to decide, Timothy, in an evil day, you're going to have to realize you are a fish swimming upstream. It's not going to be a walk in the park. It's not a romper room. It's a battlefield, brother, not a recreation room. It's a fight and not a game. Expect some difficulties. Those of you who are running your buses on Sunday, I wish to tell you everything's going to be so beautiful. Now, the weather's going to be 67 degrees. Bring it on. But I'm not telling you everything's going to be easy. You're going to fight the devil. You try to learn to give. You try to learn to be aggressive and make, make some changes. The devil knows what's going on. He's been alive for a long time. He studied mankind. He's a lot older than us. And with his age and with his demons and his imps' age, they understand life a lot better than you do. And they live in the spiritual realm. But understand, man, you've got to put your big boy britches on. It's not going to be a walk in the park. He said, the perilous day is going to need some inner man toughness. It's going to endure hardness as a good soldier, Jesus Christ. You still do what's right when difficulties come. I think that's what he challenged him. He said, perilous times need some tough inner man strength. It needs some older folks to stay on the high road and be a good example and be a good testimony. And then it needs younger people. Look, if you would please, at this. Verse number 14, but continue thou. This is the younger man. This is Timothy. Timothy, you continue in the things which thou hast learned and have been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. He said, listen, you need, to be con you need to continue doing what you learned to do at my hand, Paul's telling him, because I got this from Jesus. He said, I want you to continue, and I want you to be confident, be assured. There's two wonderful words in that verse, continue and be assured. I want you to continue with confidence that what you have been taught, how to, go, how to be a soul winner, how to be holy, how to be a separated in your biblical separation, what you've been taught in Bible study and prayer and fasting and, and service to God and forgiveness and all those things, those are things that you've been taught, that's the right thing to be taught. Remember where you got that from. You got that from me, the Apostle Paul, and I got that from Jesus. So continue with confidence what God's called you to do. That's what we need today. You know, it's amazing how loud the left is. They're loony as they can be, but they're just loud. I thought it was so wise of our police chief and uh, he, some of the folks who are negative, and, and I don't think it's wrong to protest and do those things. There's, there's some wisdom in some of that. If something's wrong, and there definitely are some injustices that need to be brought to our attention. But when people want to try to pillage things and, and cause all kinds of problems, I think uh, I thought it was kind of neat that he let the protesters go out to, to do that, and he kept police all around them, and then he blocked the traffic behind them so there's no one to shout to. <laughs> there's, you know, there's no cars to go by. They blocked the cars in the back. They toured them around them, and so they're just looking at each other, holding their signs up, you know. <laughs> and I thought that was kind of comical. I thought that was pretty, pretty smart of uh, trying to figure out some things. Truth of the matter is, the left is loud. But you know, as you're a child of God, and especially as a young servant of Christ, you can be, you can continue with confidence. What you know to do from the Bible will work in, in, in the first century and then in, in the uh, 21st century. It will work in 1500s. It'll work in 2020. Just continue being faithful in those areas. And then he says the last thing 
that he tells us that a perilous day needs, and that is a commitment to the Scriptures. How many got a Bible in your hand? Got a Bible in your hand? I tell you what, the Bible is a wonderful gift from God. I'm glad God didn't leave us on this, uh, on this earth without a road map. It tells us the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers who live in the Bible. What you and I do with the Bible determines what God's going to do with you. You know, you'd be a better daughter if you had a Bible and you loved it. You'd be a better son, a better mother, a better wife, a better husband, a better friend, a better neighbor, if you spent time in the wonderful Scriptures. So many of us don't read our Bible. We don't love our Bible. We don't obey our Bible. We don't memorize. We don't meditate upon our Bibles. I want to encourage you. Maybe tonight before you go to bed, I want you to decide, you know what, I am not going to pillow my head another night the rest of my life without reading at least one verse of the Bible. I'm not going to get through the first part of my day. I'm not going to, if I get up at 7, I'm not going to go to 9 without at least thinking about the Scriptures. Meditate on the Scriptures. The Bible is vital. And now he says in his perilous days, I want you, Timothy, to focus on the Scriptures. Four reasons God gave us the Bible. Let's look at it here. We can see it. Would you look at verse 15? Read it out loud with me, would you please? And that from a child thou hast known. The first reason God gave us the Bible is so that we could know how to be saved. It's so we could know salvation. And he first of all says to Timothy, you're going to have to make much of the Bible. Why? Because it's through the Bible that people get saved. That from a child you have known the Holy Scripture that are make thee wise unto what? If you're listening tonight in this room or you're watching by way of live stream and you're not sure if you were to die, you'd go to heaven, please stop, humble yourself, and let someone take the Bible and show you how to be saved. How do you know how to be saved? You get it. The, the faith cometh by, hearing by. Yeah, the first reason for the Bible is to teach us how to be saved, how to get to heaven from here. Make sure that you know that. And if you know that, open up your Bible and share it with somebody else. Don't be afraid to give the Scriptures to someone else. I think one, one thing I just encourage all Christians is keep asking people for an opportunity to share the Bible with them. Just your friends, your neighbors. Just sometimes, would you be willing to let me just share with you about Christianity, about what the Bible says about eternal life? Tell them it'll take about 20 minutes. Many people will say, not right now, but maybe later. That's one of my favorite things to hear. Because I can, I can wait. I can wait and I can ask again. People don't get saved oftentimes because they do not have a chance to understand it. You, th you understand it because it's not a mystery to you. You've been saved. But most of the world, it's a mystery to them. The Bible's given to us so we can know salvation and we can share salvation. The second the reason the Bible is given to us is for our success. For salvation, number one. Number two, for success. Would you say it with me? Number one. Number two, look at verse 16. You probably know it by heart. All Scripture is given by inspiration and is what? Profitable. Okay? Let me just say something to you. God wants Gary Sumner to be successful. God wants John Wilkerson to be successful. God wants Susie Yao to be successful. He wants Jim Maxwell to be successful. He wants Kimberly Spear to be successful. Anybody who his kids are, 
I mean, I had the joy to have, be a parent of nine children. I want them to succeed. I want them to have happy marriages. I want them to have success in their work and their endeavors. I want them to, to be safe, to make good decisions. Quite frankly, I want them to have success. Do you think God is a worse father than I am? No. Does he have less desires than I would naturally he put inside of me for my own kids? No, he wants you to be successful. As a matter of fact, the only time he puts success in the Bible, the word success in our English language, is in Joshua 1.8, which talks explicitly about the Scriptures. You know the verse. You're probably familiar with it. This book, the Word of God, of the law, shall not depart out of thy... So he said, I should talk about the Bible. But not only talk about it, but thou shalt meditate, think about it. And then observe to do all that is written therein. That means whatever it says to do, that's what I want to do. If it tells me to forgive and quit holding the grudge, well, lay down the grudge and forgive. God's not going to give you something to do you can't do. If he tells you to do something, do it, whatever it might be. If he tells you to live pure, you can live pure. Don't make excuses. He tells, you to, to, he tells us to put away anger. That means you can do that. If he tells you, whatever God tells us to do, we can do it. He said, meditate on it, and then observe to do it. For in that, doing those things, you'll make your way prosperous, and thou shalt have good success. Brother Tom puts that together as his, as his motto for his company, good success. Trying to make sure that our lives are honoring the Lord as a result of the Scriptures. He said, I've given you the Bible so it can be profitable unto you. And it's profitable in four ways. God gives us doctrine and for reproof, for correction, instruction, and righteousness. You see that in verse number 16. Basically, doctrine is so you'll know what to do. Reproof, so you'll know what not to do. Correction, so you'll know how to get it right when you messed it up. And instruction in righteousness is how to stay right. So it's what's right, what's not right, how to get right, how to stay right. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not. What's your relationship to the Bible, ma'am? Sir, what's your relationship to the Bible? Do you know where your Bible is? Did you just find it tonight on the way to church? Where is that thing? I know I had it at church on Sunday. Problem. Well, Pastor, I, I'm just reading the Bible, I'm not getting out of it. Well, just, I tell you what, stop for a second, and, and don't read, don't worry about the volume, worry about the content. I personally think you ought to read your Bible as much as you possibly can. I think it's a good idea. But quite frankly, I'd rather you meditate on one verse than to read 45 of them, close your Bible, and say, well, that's done, I think that's over with. I'd rather you meditate on one tr truth. I think God wants us to meditate on why? Because he wants you to prosper. He wants you to have success. God gave us the Bible for salvation. He gave us the Bible for success. Look at the last verse, verse 17. Who could read that for me? Can I get a man to stand and read that for us? Verse 17, 2 Timothy 3, 17. Will, you got it there, Harena? You got it there? Read it for us, would you please? Verse 17. Can we read it again with him, everybody together? Verse 17, that the man of God may be All right, those Bible scholars, what does perfect mean? Without sin? No, what does it mean? 
mature. God gave us the Bible for salvation, for success, and for seasoning. For, for, for you and I to grow up and to be mature. You might remember this, uh, someone say he's a seasoned player. That means he's a mature player. He's been at it a while. He's good at it. You know, he's a seasoned hunter. He's really, he knows what he's doing. You know, God wants you to know how to live the Christian life. And that will directly relate to how you and I view the Bible. Many of you who went to school, and I had the joy to go to school at the same time you did, you heard one of our teachers say, what you do with the Bible determines what God does with you. And what happens, the more I have a love relationship with the Bible, the more uh, mature I grow. I handle things differently. I will handle life a lot differently. The other day I had something happen in our home and one of our, our kids just he about lost it. He was just overwhelmed with what was taking place. And my wife called me and said, John, can you go and, and see if you can handle that problem? I walked over there and he was as wide-eyed, oh, I don't know what to do. And I, I said, well, let me get my jeans on and I'll go down and fix work on it. He's like, Dad, how can you be so calm? Because it's not my first rodeo. <laughs> I've done this before. I've had these problems. And I know that going crazy is not going to help you run around with your hair on fire. is not going to help you fix the problem. I would say I'm maturing a little bit in handling problems. I don't like them. I don't necessarily, but I also know that God's in control. He's going to help us, and my young uh, child is learning that. You know what helps us learn to handle problems? Many of us, big people make big problems little. Little people make little problems big. And they blame the problems. They blame everybody around them. They blame their past. They blame their teacher. They blame their school. They blame their mom and their dad and failures of that instead of realizing that, you know what, wherever you go, you've got to take you. And somebody needs to grow up in this picture. And growing up is related to the Word of God. I don't know exactly what it looks to be a grown Christian or a mature Christian, but I do know this, several things about mature Christians. Number one, they, are, they know themselves. They know their strengths and their weaknesses. Mature Christians, they are themselves. They know themselves and they are themselves. Mature Christians are sensitive to others within their sphere of influence. Babies scream their head off right in the middle of a 737 jet. They don't care if you're sitting next to them. They throw fits in the middle of the grocery store when there's a whole line of people. They don't care because they're babies. But as we grow, we ought to care about people around us. It's one of the most Christian disciplines. You know, the situation with the COVID and sitting staggered and spaced and, and that kind of a thing, it's not really fun. It's kind of aggravating. But you know what? Mature Christians look not every man on his own things, but every man on the things of others. Mature Christians kind of evaluate, you know what? I may not have a problem here, but someone does. So if I can help them, for a little while, we can do this. Apostle Paul said, listen, if I found another Christian who doesn't, who thinks it's wrong for me to eat meat, well, I don't have to eat meat the rest of my life. If it hurts him, I don't want to hurt him over a piece of meat. 
I would rather go without meat so that he doesn't get hurt. Boy, now that's really Christianity. And please don't tell me you have a problem with meat because we're not going there, right? I'm not there yet. Now, Brother Eddie, he might do it, but not me. But you talk about, you talk about, we know what, that was the maximum Christian response. He said, if meat offends my brother, then I don't have to eat meat the rest of my life. Because not, I'm not going to hurt my brother over a piece of meat. You know, that's what that is. That's, that's Christianity on steroids. That's mature, sensitive to the needs of others. Mature Christians are sensitive and they're, they're contented in their spirit. They're not always complaining and whining and nothing ever makes them happy. No, mature Christians are contented. They're easy to live with. They're easy to approach. They're easy to entreat. Mature Christians are motivated by responsibility, not rights and privileges and comfort. They don't ask, you know, well, how is this going to affect me? They say, you know, what am I supposed to do here? What's the right thing to do? Not how it's going to affect my workload, how it's going to affect me, but what is the right thing here? They're motivated by responsibilities and not their own comfort zone. Mature Christians are, are focused on the eternal and not the temporal. Mature Christians are motivated intrinsically by love. They just love. They love God and they know God loves them. God gave us the Bible so that the man of God would be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good, what's the last word, works. So God gave us the Bible so we would know how to be saved and share that news with others. God gave us the Bible so I could be a successful dad, husband, son, brother, neighbor, Christian, church member. And the more I get in the Bible, the more success will come from my life. God gave me the Bible so I could season and mature and handle things with maturity. And God gave me the Bible so I would know how to serve him. So I'd be fully equipped to do whatever good work he wants me to do. I think that works for me, and it probably would work for you. 